Today's reading comes from Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. I'll be reading from NIV. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations, She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there's no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and hard labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, We have a special treat um, as we are welcoming Dr. Sung Chang Ra to worship with us and to preach for us. We are so grateful to have him with us. He comes to us from California, uh, and he serves as a professor of evangelism at Fuller's School of Mission and Theology. He was actually my uh, worship pastor. You should have seen him. It's about 30 years ago. Um, In my younger days and in his younger days, he's a passionate worshiper. He'll be like sweating. (laughs) I remember that. He'll be sweating, uh, leading worship, um, crying and leading us to worship God with full heart, full devotion. Um, That's when I was in D.C. and uh, I was attending New Covenant Fellowship Church where he was uh, leading worship every Sunday. Um, Later, he planned a church in Boston area uh, and served as a pastor for many years until God called him to serve God and his church through teaching ministry in various um, institutions, and now he's at Fuller. He's also a writer of many award-winning books. Some of you may have read, uh, read his book, books, uh, and I actually start to read, the, I haven't finished yet, but the next evangel- evangelicalism, freeing the church from the Western cultural captivity. I think it won a Christianity Today award of some sort, a book award, and a prophetic lament, uh, a call for justice in troubled times, and most recently, Unsettling Truth, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. He is a very important voice for the global church on various topics, especially on the witness of the church, cross-cultural ministry, and social justice. And I trust that God will speak to each of us as he has brought Dr. Sung Chan Ra to share God's word from Lamentations this morning. Let's give him our new hope, warm welcome. Well, thank you very much. Very honored to be here with you. And uh, I'm, I'm a little fearful of looking back because my head must be about 50 feet wide behind me there. Oh, okay. Um, so many years ago, I spoke at Urbana, and um, one of the things I was very fearful of, because I have an interesting syndrome, uh, it's called AWF, uh, Asian Wide Face. Um, and so when they were broadcasting Urbana, they have it on these jumbotrons. 
And so I was thinking, oh, please don't do any close-ups of me because I'm going to dominate that whole screen and people are going to be very scared how large that Asian face is. So uh, thank you for not doing too many close-ups of me. appreciate that. Um, I am 55 years old. And yes, turn to your neighbor and says, he doesn't look 55 at all. No, he doesn't. Um, I turned 50 a few years ago, and when I turned 50, I decided that this is the decade that I'm going to take my physical health very seriously. Uh, I said that when I turned 40, but I said when I turned 50, no, this is really the decade that I'm going to look after my physical health. So I'm an academic, and I do research, so I went online <laughs> and used the academic's number one tool. It's called Google. You might have heard of it. Uh, so I go on Google, and I type in, how do I stay fit? How do I get physically fit? And up popped this uh, one particular exercise program. It's called CrossFit. Have you, any of you heard of it? CrossFit? Any of you do it? Neither do I. Uh, so CrossFit, I found out, uses a uh, philosophy of exercise, and it's called muscle confusion. And when I read that, I was very excited because that's my approach to exercise. And the way I apply it is I don't go to the gym for months and months, and when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we are there, and they get really hard and angry. So that's been my approach to exercise. And as I started reading about how to stay fit, how to be healthy, uh, this idea of muscle confusion, this idea of the introduction of discomfort, dis-ease, as actually a way towards spiritual health began to intrigue me. That maybe there are places and times where discomfort, dis-ease, disruption, and confusion is actually good for us physically, but is it also possible it's good for us spiritually, emotionally? That if we are too set in our status quo, then will we ever grow? Uh, Richard Sennett, a, a NYU professor, said it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? And this is where we encounter the book of Lamentations, which is uh, not a very well-studied book of the Bible, but a few years ago, I wrote a commentary in the book of Lamentations, which is, you know, a sure bestseller. I've sold five copies. So, you know, you have a book on Lamentations that very few people have ever studied. And this is indicative not just in terms of teaching, but in terms of worship life. So several years ago, um, they did a study on how, many, how much of our worship is lament and how much of our worship is celebration and uh, kind of triumph, victory, good, God is good type of songs. So there are two genres of the psalms. There is the genre of the hymns of celebration, which talk about how great is our God, really important to do, but there's also the genre of what we call lament psalms. And that's when we talk about pain and suffering that is in the world. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that in the Psalms, the worship life of Israel, you'll find that 60% of the Psalms are what we call Psalms of celebration, hymns of triumph. But 40% of the Psalms are hymns of what we call lament and suffering. So they, there was a study that was done a few years ago, and they were examining the worship patterns of liturgical churches. So some of you may know churches like the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, Lutheran churches, they actually have guidelines on what passages to preach, even what hymns to sing, and what psalms to read as part of their book of worship. But it turned out that many of these liturgical churches, when it was time to preach a lament psalm, or read a lament psalm, or sing a lament hymn, they would drop it and replace it with a happier song or a happier lament, or a happier psalm, rather, or a happier passage of scripture. A similar study was done with uh, those who worship using hymns. 
And this was the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. And when they looked at the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, they found that 80 to 85% of the hymnals were hymns of celebration, victory, triumph. And only 10 or 15% of the hymnal was songs of lament. Again, compare that to the 60-40 mix you have in the Bible itself. It's disproportionate towards triumph and victory. So I decided to do this research on contemporary Christian worship and ask the question, what percentage of our popular Christian songs are songs of celebration and songs of lament? So every year around uh, August or so, uh, the CCLI, which uh, has the license over like all the contemporary Christian worship music, uh, they actually have a fairly accurate list of how, many, uh, how Christian songs are sung usually on a weekend because uh, they actually keep a list because it's how the royalties are distributed. So every year they publish the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian worship songs in the United States. Now, how many of you say that just like in the Bible, our top 100 Christian songs, uh, 60% or 40% are songs of lament? About 25% of our top 100 are songs. How about 15%? How about 10%? How about 5%? Well, it turns out that about five to 10 of the top 100 worship songs are songs of lament. And I'm using the word lament as generously as I possibly could. The song starts out, I cry out. Yes, lament. The rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. I still counted it because there were just so few lament songs. And so if you go through these popular Christian worship songs, you're seeing that pattern of worship in North America and especially in the Western world where we are singing songs that celebrate goodness, which is appropriate, but we don't know how to deal with pain and suffering. And so what happens when lament is lost as a spiritual practice in the church? Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, when lament is lost, our sense of understanding injustice and therefore our calling out for justice gets lost. Can you see that? So lament recognizes the pain that is in the world. Lament says, look at the pain that is happening in our community, in our city, in our neighborhood, in our country, in our world. Lament recognizes that pain, recognizes the injustice behind that pain, and therefore cries out to God for justice. But when we don't lament, when we don't engage the stories of pain and suffering, then we don't know how to cry out to God for justice. And that's what we encounter in the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations chapter 1, as it has been read to us, it reminds us of the context of the book of Lamentations. As I said, that's the commentary that I wrote a few years ago. Uh, the book of Lamentations is a particular uh, uh, statement in response to a particular historical event. And we see this in verse uh, 1 and following. That how deserted lies the city once so, so full of people. That is a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as you know, had once been a great city. It was the capital of Israel. It was the city established by King David. So Jerusalem was the ultimate city of God. In fact, in the name itself, there is the name city of God, city of Yahweh's peace. And so what you see in Jerusalem is this uh, revered city, the, the kind of the, the, the gemstone of the keystone of the whole uh, nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But some of you know the whole story of Israel. While under David and Solomon, they were a, a, a superpower, the subsequent kings followed other gods and, and disobeyed God and disobeyed the law. And they began to drift away from the laws of Yahweh and began to worship false idols. 
And as a result of their persistent generational disobedience, God needed to punish Israel. And so first the northern kingdom is wiped out, and then the southern kingdom is wiped out, and all that's left is the capital city of Jerusalem, and the Babylonians lay siege to it, and eventually Jerusalem also falls. So think about that dichotomy. Think about this city, once so full of people. She was like a queen among the provinces, and now she is deserted and like a widow. And she weeps at night, verse 2. Tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. There is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Jerusalem is not only dead as a city, they are completely lost and the ultimate punishment for God's people, after affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. Exile is the ultimate punishment for God's people. Now, the way the exile worked is they took the kings, the prophets, uh, the learned, anybody who could read or write, and they sent them away into exile, and the only ones left in Jerusalem were the widows, the orphans, the women, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, all those marginalized in society who they said could never rebuild that city. So this is the scenario. The people of God have lost everything. They've lost everything. They've lost their home. They've lost their, their uh, identity as God's people. They've, they've had their families ripped apart. Their leadership has gone away. All the things that they've treasured and valued that made them special, that made them uh, honored in the eyes of God, all of that was gone. So how will they respond now to this tragedy in Israel's history? Now, if we look at the context, you'll find that there are kind of three different responses. I want to key in on two of them. The first possible response, when everything falls apart like that, when you lose everything that you thought was important to you, the first possible response is to run away and hide, to give up. To say, I'm just not going to try anymore. This is too difficult. Now, it's not a good response, but it is a possible response. And actually what happens is uh, that Jeremiah responds to this sense of defeat, we're going to give up in Jeremiah chapter 29. You might know that passage. In Jeremiah tw chapter 29, Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon, and he says, don't give up. Uh, uh, marry and have children, and have children, your children have marry, and let them have children, and build houses, and be vineyards, and, and do the things that you're supposed to do, because even if you are in Babylon, you are still God's people. You don't get to give up. And this is something that I think Christians need to be reminded of over and over again. No matter what difficult circumstances arise, in this case, they've lost everything. God still says, you're still not allowed to give up. You still don't have the option to run away and hide. And so for those of us, many thousands of years later, to look back and say, in God's people, in the midst of tremendous suffering and pain, God still says to them, you are not allowed to give up. How does that word still speak to us today in the midst of suffering and pain you also are not allowed to give up. There's a problem with this, though. There's a history, uh, particularly in, in North American history, but in U.S. history, there's a problem in that the churches have oftentimes more likely to give up than to stay in the pain, to run away and hide, rather than to engage the suffering and the lament. So this is particularly true in urban centers. My, my background in ministry has been in urban, uh, urban settings. I was a city pastor, and I've, most of my research has been on in the area of urban ministry. So when I look at uh, urban history, one of the things that you notice is that when things got difficult in the city, oftentimes Christians fled the city. They left the city. So when the city begins to change, 
It changes from a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant center to much more Greek Orthodox, Italian Catholic, Russian Orthodox. When those folks start moving in, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches start moving to the suburbs. Then the African-American communities start moving in. Then the Latino communities start moving in. Yes, the Asian communities start moving into the urban centers. Then the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches would run to the suburbs. That's why you might notice that many seminaries and Christian colleges are not necessarily in the cities. They're oftentimes in the suburbs. So I noticed this as a trend in architecture a few years ago. So if we can put that slide up, several years ago I noticed that many churches that were built in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s had an architecture that looked like this. A slanted roof with a little bit of an arch and what they call these kind of buttresses that support this. Now I was about nine years old when my church dedicated this church building to look like this. I walk into that building, it was in the east coast of the United States, and I looked up at the ceiling and I said, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. As a nine-year-old, I knew this was a bad idea. It was a cold weather, cold January day when this building was being dedicated. Now, when you have the heating vents on the ground and you have a building uh, shaped like this, where does all that wonderful hot air go? Right up into the rafters. So you literally have the frozen chosen in their seats and all that warm air up in the rafters. And I'm a nine-year-old kissing. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Whose idea was it to build this church like this? The senior pastor gets up there and says, it was my idea to build the church to look like this. I said, what are you thinking, man? And he said, now I want you to picture this entire sanctuary turned upside down. If we can go to the next slide. Picture the sanctuary turned upside down. He says, what are you looking at? He says, you're looking at the bottom of a boat. You're looking at the hull of a ship. And he asked the question, where in the Bible do you read about a really big ship? Well, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is where you read about this really big ship. So why are you building your church to look like Noah's Ark? Because you're saying you want to be safe in Noah's Ark, but you don't really care about the world that is out there. You got your nice little safety and your comfort in Noah's Ark, but let the world be judged and damned, and we don't care all as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark. In fact, we're so safe in Noah's Ark that we will take a little bit of the world out there, we will sanctify it and have a nice Christian version on Noah's Ark. If the world has their secular schools, we will have our Christian schools. If the world has their secular literature, we will have our Christian literature. World has secular art, we will have Christian art. World has secular music, we will have mediocre, not so good Christian music. And so you develop this idea that the, there's a hostility to the world and we don't care about the world as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. And so we see our churches in that way. We see our Christian communities in that way. What we've done is what we were told not to do in Jeremiah 29. We ran away and hid. We did not engage the pain and suffering that is in the world. So we sing our triumphant victory songs on Noah's Ark while the rest of the world we see is flooded with the judgment of God. So how then do we respond from Scripture to the reality of pain and suffering in the world. I, I put it very simply, what is lament? Lament is the appropriate theological, ecclesial, spiritual, biblical response to the reality of pain and suffering that is in the world. We recognize that there is pain and suffering in the world. We recognize the need to respond, not with we're gonna fix this somehow, versus God, we need your justice to come in 
where there is injustice. We need your holiness to come in where there is unholiness. We need your power to come in where there is powerlessness. We cry out to you, God, as the God of justice to intervene in this injustice, and that is what lament is. And that, sadly, is oftentimes what is missing in the church. Let me point you to one of the most important lessons in the book of Lamentations. And it actually happens to be about who wrote the book of Lamentations. Biblical scholars have kind of debated this. Well, who wrote the book of Lamentations? As I said earlier, uh, the exile that occurred after the fall of Jerusalem was actually a selective exile. Not everybody was sent away. The ones that were sent away were the able-bodied men, like Daniel and his friends, and you know that story. Uh, those who were the prophets, the priests, the kings, anybody who was literate. Why? Because the able-bodied men and anybody who was literate could rebuild that city. They can bring people together and lead that city and rebuild Jerusalem, and obviously Babylon didn't want that. So they took away all the able-bodied men, anybody who was learned, anybody who could read or write. Which asks the question then, well, who was left behind who could, read, uh, who could write the book of Lamentations? Because it's clearly written by someone that was literate. So who wrote the book of Lamentations? Well, it turns out, we know in history, that there was at least one literate person that was left behind. Possibly the only literate person. His name was Jeremiah. So Jeremiah has oftentimes been credited with the authorship of Lamentations because he's the only possible person who was behind, who was left behind, who could read or write. Therefore, he's the one that wrote the book of, of Lamentations. There's only one small problem with the authorship of Jeremiah, which is when you compare the book of Jeremiah, which we know Jeremiah wrote, and compare that to the book of Lamentations, it's like two different authors. The styles are too sharp and, and markedly different. You say, wait, how could one person have written Jeremiah and Lamentation? The, the differences are too stark. Uh, the way I compare it, it's like uh, reading Shakespeare or Kendrick Lamar. I always have to pause and see like the audience, There's no, if anybody knows Kendrick Lamar. So <laughs> I think this is not a Kendrick Lamar audience. So let's put it this way. Uh, uh, Shakespeare and Bob Dylan. Maybe not a Bob Dylan audience either. But we're talking about two great writers. Uh, let's go back to Kendrick. Uh, two great writers. But if you read Shakespeare, and if you read Kendrick Lamar, or listen to Kendrick Lamar, if you're reading these two different authors or writers, uh, you're, you're probably going to say, yeah, that's not the same person. Because their styles of writing are so markedly different. And so Shakespeare is Jeremiah. And Lamentations reads like Kendrick Lamar. Now again, both are great writers. Only Kendrick has a Pulitzer, by the way. So you've got two great writers, but two very different styles, very similar to Jeremiah and Lamentations. So how do we resolve this conflict of how these two books have such two different styles? My thesis is that Jeremiah did write the book of Lamentations because he was the only literate person there. So he's the one writing down the words of Lamentations. But here's what's fascinating. If you read through the book of Lamentations, you'll notice that it's not his voice. It's not his point of view that he writes down. In fact, what happens is that after the fall of Jerusalem, he goes to the city gate, which is like the town hall. And again, all the men and all the leaders and all the learned have been taken away. And so the only ones left are the widows, the orphans, the, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. And they come together to the city center. And they began to cry out their laments. And it's actually mostly the women's voices that rise up in the book of Lamentations. 
I write that Lamentations may be the most feminine book of the Bible, even more than Esther and Ruth, because in the story of Esther and Ruth, you're actually having kind of a man looking over and telling the story of Esther and Ruth. But in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah steps aside, puts his voice aside, so that the voices of those who have actually suffered, their voices rise up. There's a lesson in the book of Lamentations. It's that we need to hear the voices of the suffering. Oftentimes the women who suffer the most when circumstances like this arise. To get out of the way, even though we're the privileged ones, even though we're the educated ones, even though we're the ones with all the degrees and all the know-how and the knowledge, we've read all the books, but there are times when Jeremiah the prophet steps out of the way so that the voices of the poor, so that the voices of the suffering, so that the voices of the marginalized, they rise up and they speak truth to our communities. I was reminded of this um, several years ago. I taught for about five years when I was at North Park Seminary in Chicago. I taught for several years at a, a Stateville Correctional Center. Stateville Correctional Center is a maximum security prison about an hour outside of the city of Chicago. Uh, if you know how like, these uh, max security prisons work, what usually happens is that the crime is oftentimes committed in inner city neighborhoods, but once the crime is committed, they actually take the prisoner far away, about an hour to two, sometimes even three hours away from where their home is, and take them to a max security prison, oftentimes in rural communities or sub-rural communities. So our school, North Park, started an outreach program to, uh, to the uh, State for Correctional Center. And it started off as a kind of a, um, a chaplaincy program where we would send our students into the prison to serve as chaplains. Then we realized that, okay, it's not working out because our 25-year-old chaplains were being mentored by the 50, 60-year-old inside students, the incarcerated students. And so it became more of what we call the inside-outside model where we would go in, but our students would be on the same level of students as the students that were on the inside. And so we were trying to try a new model of teaching in prison, which was all of us are equal in that classroom. But I didn't quite get that the first time I went into State for Correctional Center. It's a max security prison. And it can be a little bit frightening. If you've ever been inside a prison, uh, one of the things that happens is that they, they pretty much remove your identity from you. No watches, no ID, uh, obviously no laptops, no cell phones. They pat you down, make sure you have nothing on your person. Sometimes you have to strip down. And then they march you into this uh, hallway and the door shuts behind you. You hear the clanging doors coming along and shutting behind you. And then you have to be in that enclosed space for a set amount of time. And then the door in front of you finally opens and that allows you into the prison. So the whole process is intentionally dehumanizing. It's intentionally demeaning, but that's not just the process. That's a process that I went through once a week, but it's a process that my students were experiencing every day, a dehumanizing and demeaning practice. And so when we go in there, I realize that, first of all, um, I'm an a, a average height Asian, which means relatively short. I'm a short Asian guy uh, that is not necessarily very physically fit, because I'm not doing CrossFit, obviously. So I'm a short Asian guy without physical fitness, walking into a classroom of prisoners, mostly black and brown. My class was about 80% African-American, 15% Latino, 5% uh, uh, white. And so I'm walking into this classroom, and my students, uh, the African-American students are like six foot four, 
225 pounds, absolutely cut, absolutely ripped. And I'm walking into this short, pudgy Asian guy, and I'm thinking, I've got to establish my authority in that classroom, or I'm going to lose, lose big time very quickly. So here's what I do, and many of us do this. I make sure that they know my credentials. And here are my credentials. I'm a, I have three Ivy League degrees. I have two master's degrees. I have two doctorate degrees. I'm a tenured professor. I've written seven books, and I lay it on thick. I'm on there like, so this is why I'm in control of this classroom. And to their credit, my incarcerated friends, my inside students were very gracious and said, all right, Dr. Ra, all right, Prof. Ra, we got you, we got you. And they accepted me into that classroom. But I kept putting on this facade of strength. I'm the learned one. I'm the privileged one. I'm the one with authority in the classroom. And that lasted for about seven, eight weeks into the class. And at about the eight-week mark, uh, I was going through some extraordinary challenges in my life. Uh, kind of every area in my life that you can think of was falling apart. And if you were to say, did this happen? No way this happened. Yeah, all of those things were happening in that eight-week stretch. So at about the eighth week, I, I began to kind of lose it. And, and I remember that eighth week, and I'm, I'm sitting in classroom, and, and I couldn't keep up that facade anymore, the facade of strength, the facade of power, the facade of victory and triumph over everything that comes my way. I could fix it. I could handle it. I couldn't do it anymore. And I actually remember sitting down and putting my, uh, uh, putting my head down because I just could not put on that facade anymore. And I would never forget my dear brother, Corzell Cole, six foot four, 230 pounds, ripped, gold teeth, tattoos all over his body. One of the, one of the strongest and fiercest looking men I've ever met. He comes over to me while I'm seated in my chair and he whispers in my ear, I'm going to get in trouble for what I'm about to do, but I really feel like you need this. And he grabbed me and held me, and he allowed me to cry in his arms. Corzell allowed me to cry in his arms. The man who said, I'm better than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm, I'm spiritually better than you, I'm intellectually better than you. Corzell Cole, a prisoner with a life sentence, held me while I cried in his arms. And at that moment, there was no Ivy League education. There was no prisoner. It was just two men in the image of God striving for God's presence. That kind of lament is what we are missing in the church, where we think we've got all the answers for other people, where we think we can go and fix the world's problems when we don't even see our own brokenness and the need to be in community with those that are also broken. That next week, uh, my dear brother Michael Michael Sullivan, um, I don't know how he got online, but he got online and he figured out how to say, my dear brother, I love you in Korean and said that to me when I came into the classroom. Another one of my students, William Jones, he's 67 years old. Uh, he was given a, uh, he was actually on death row. And then when they commuted, when they got rid of the death row in Illinois, he was given a life sentence with no possibility of parole. He's 67 years old. He's been in prison now for 45 years. Um, and he, yeah, he's probably never getting out. But that next week, he comes up to me and says, on your way out at the uh, gate, guard gate, I, I left something for you. I left you a gift. And I want you to know that when I painted, there was a painting that he did for me, I thought of you. So I go and I look at it, and I said, he thinks I'm a black man with an afro, because he painted a black man with an afro. <laughs> this is me. And it was someone charging the gates of hell. And he says, that's going to be you, my dear brother. When we enter into places of injustice, we don't come with all the answers with our victory and triumph and the idea that we can fix everybody else's problems, we instead come as fellow broken beings, broken because of our sin, 
broken because of the brokenness that is in the world, broken because of injustice, and we share that moment where we say we lament together in our mutual brokenness, in our mutual suffering. And out of that shared community arises a lament that leads to praise. And that's what happens in Lamentations chapter 5. Jeremiah's voice completely disappears by the last chapter of, Jeremiah, of Lamentations. In Lamentations 5, 1 through 4, uh, you can hear Jeremiah's voice pop in and out. But by chapter 5, his voice completely disappears and it just becomes the prayer of the people. It just becomes the prayer of the, those that are the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. The privileged and the educated disappear into this humanity that cries out for justice together. My dear brothers and sisters, can you be that kind of community? Not a community with all the answers that can fix everybody else's problems, but that will enter into lament with the community of believers and cry out to God when there is injustice in the world to cry out for God together alongside for those who cry out for justice. Gracious God, thank you that you are not a God who is distant, but you are a God who dwells and makes his dwelling in the very midst of us, who moves in our midst and who cries out and we cry out to you, Lord, because we see the brokenness in our lives, the brokenness of this world, the injustice in the world, and alongside our brothers and sisters who are on the inside incarcerated, alongside our brothers and sisters who are in places of great poverty and suffering, we cry out for the God of justice to intervene. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't we spend some time in response to what we just heard? I want to give a God moment for each of us here. I need one myself. Let's, uh, let's meditate and chew on what we heard just now. And we don't want to just hear with our ears this morning. We want to hear with our hearts. And we want to invite the Spirit to continue to minister to us. So we don't have a response song, but we have a response time in prayer of lament this morning. So let me give you that space and time for each, each of us to, to do that.
So Father, this morning we come with all the facades put aside and we acknowledge, not only acknowledge, but we lament our brokenness. And Father, we repent of putting faces on Sundays. We put our Sunday best faces pretending that it's okay when it's not okay. So I invite you, brothers and sisters, to lament. And God, we lament because our sin and brokenness, pain and suffering is so real. And some of us have been going through that season maybe too long. But God, I thank you that this morning you encourage us not to give up. We're not allowed to give up because we have a God who never gives up on us. Not only that, Jesus, you entered into our pain and suffering. We have a God who came into our pain and suffering and suffered with us and suffered for us. Oh, what a savior we have. Aren't we grateful, church? God, we are so grateful that you are God who's not aloof from our brokenness and sin, injustice, ugliness, messiness. But you come in and you, your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. And you promised that I'm making all things new. But until that day when everything is made new, as much as we sing the major key of celebration, we also sing the minor key of lament. Help us to do that, O oh God, as a church. Liberate us and free us from health and wealth gospel that denies this reality of injustice and suffering in the world. Help us to engage as a church. Help us to be people who are poor in spirit. For you promise that those who are poor in spirit, those who are poor will have kingdom of God. And God, we also remember those who are suffering, our families and friends, our neighbors, people in this city, people who fled their homes and their cities, the refugees amongst us, and the families that they have left behind in their home country. We don't understand them fully. We acknowledge that. Help us to learn. Help, help us to be learners true disciples of Jesus. Help us to see your beautiful, glorious image in them with different color skins, different stories. 
Help us to be humble. Oh God, we acknowledge that we have a lot of work that needs to be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in this church. Help us start with humility. We humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, just as you have humbled yourself, O oh Jesus. And Father, just as all the lament psalms end with trust in your steadfast love, we trust you. We, for this portion of our worship service this morning, we we close our lament with trust in you. One who calls us not to give up. We don't give up either, O oh God, because we trust in your steadfast love. In your goodness, in your faithfulness, church, can we stand? Let's. Uh, let me just close with benediction. Or before I finish with benediction, Father, we thank you uh, for your beloved Son, your servant. Your lament prophet, Dr. Ra. God, we pray for your blessing over his life, his family, his ministry. You have raised him to be a voice, an important voice for the global church in our day and age. God, I pray that you will protect him. God, I thank you for the story of his life, story of brokenness, but story of also restoration. God, I thank you that he embodies the message that he preaches. God, I pray that wherever he goes, especially as he leads the conference this coming week at Tyndale for church leaders, that you will anoint him, you will strengthen him. And wherever he goes, especially as he teaches at Fuller, as global church leaders gather to learn, God, I pray that you will use him. And through him, Churches across the, the world will be strengthened and equipped to sing songs of lament, even as we engage in your mission in this broken world. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God our Father, love of God our Father, for all broken people and fellowship and empowering grace of the Holy Spirit be with all of God's people who lament over our own brokenness, but also injustice and pain and suffering in this world. And yet we will never give up, for you have called us to engage in this world of brokenness with heart of Christ. Be with all of God's people, people now and forevermore. Amen.